1: Stuff You Should Know is coming to your town October 9th and 10th, which is soon. Which means the time to buy tickets is running out, and FYI, our shows tend to sell out. So, go to sysklive.com, and you'll find links to tickets and info, and you should probably go now. We'll see you in October, and if you want to come see me, do my End of the World live show, I'll be in Chicago on September 12th and in Austin, Texas on October 2nd. Ticket links are weirdly hard to find, so just search End of the World Josh Clark Austin or Chicago and your friendly search engine will help you out. See you in Orlando, New Orleans, Chicago, and Austin.
0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, and welcome to The Horror Show. I'm Josh. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry over there. And um, we are uh, about to pass out from nausea.
0: Yeah, I think we need to issue a strong COA. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know. Maybe some parents might... It depends on what you title this thing. They might think Ed Gein was like a children's show host or something.
1: Yeah, I, I guess that's possible. So, yeah, it's a good idea. We... Preface this with, this one is really just not for kids. No. I don't even know what age it would really start. Maybe 14, 15? I, I don't know. It's really grisly and gross. Yeah. Maybe no one should listen to this. How about that? <laughs> um, Before we get even further started, just let me throw one more thing in, okay? Okay. I am doing an end-of-the-world live show in Chicago on September 12th. Just saying. So, if anybody wants to go see... You can get tickets to come see me do my End of the World live show in Chicago on September 12th at lh-st.com. Nuff said. That's great. Thanks, Chuck. So we're talking about Ed Gein, who is most decidedly not a children's show host. um, Although, ironically, he was a babysitter from time to time. Yeah. (laughs) That was maybe the most shocking thing I've ever read in my life.
0: Yeah, although, I mean... It doesn't seem like he posed much. I mean, obviously, he was a threat to anything, but that was not his M.O.
1: No, kids weren't, which we'll see later. Some people are like, it doesn't matter. He's probably still a child killer. Uh, it just doesn't fit. There, He had a very specific M.O. for sure as yeah. far as killers go. And he doesn't qualify, as far as I know, as a serial killer, although I think that's just silly. But um, he failed to hit the the big three mark, I guess, is what it takes to be a serial killer. Well, proven at least. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, he's possibly a serial killer, I guess. And if you um, have never heard of Ed Gein, fret not, we're going to tell you all about him. But I would wager that you have at least encountered some character based on him, because there's probably no real-life killer or criminal. Now, we'll just stick with killer, who's inspired more utterly deranged characters than Ed Gein has.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we... We know the big three are, of course, Psycho mm-hmm. uh, with Norman Bates, Texas Chainsaw Massacre with Leatherface, sure, and of course, Silence of the Lambs with Hannibal Lecter.
1: That was James James Gum who was. Oh based well, that's on, true. Yeah, James Gum was the
0: uh, Buffalo Bill character.
1: Right. Exactly. Who has many to, names? Right.
0: <laughs> none of which are Hannibal Lecter.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Hannibal Lecter was even like, man, that guy's off his rocker. You think? Yeah, I think a little bit. I think he was kind of like this. Maybe at least he felt he was sloppy or something. He 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 definitely knew he was smarter than that guy. So okay. I think he looked down on him in one way or another. Okay. So um, Ed Gein's story starts as so many of our stories start at birth, uh, back in 1906 in Wisconsin. He was born little Edward Theodore Gein, and I'd like to say, like, things started out normally, but I don't get the impression that there was a single normal day in Ed Gein's entire life. He he just really pulled up the short straw, as it were, as far as the birth lottery goes.
0: Yeah, he, uh, you know, his father was a abusive alcoholic. Mm-hmm. His mother, uh, she owned a grocery store for a little while in La Crosse, Wisconsin, but she was uh augusta was by all accounts a um mentally ill religious zealot uh overbearing overbearing there needs to be a stronger word in this case super overbearing
1: super overbearing mother <laughs> yeah <laughs> times infinity
0: yeah and the and the religious uh the religious stuff is just off the charts as far as um anything to do with sex and right. intercourse was the worst dirty possible thing imaginable, and that she hammered this into her two boys.
1: She really didn't. Hammer by, I guess, grabbing their genitalia sometimes and railing at them about how this is the devil's unit or whatever she'd call it. I don't know. She probably could have called it the devil's unit. I don't think it's entirely impossible. But she realized, she looked around their town of La Crosse, Wisconsin, and said, this place is a a sinkhole of filth. There's a quote from her. I guess it's a Ed Gein doing an impression of his mom, which we'll find out later he really liked to do a lot. Um, and she moved her whole family, sold the family grocery store, and moved from La Crosse, Wisconsin, to a little town called Plainfield, which had a population of about 500. And Plainfield was... It had been established decades before, but it was still so small that they'd only built the fire station and the local school within the last, like, seven, eight years. It was a very tiny little town. And so you'd think, like, okay, maybe Augusta Gein could, could relax a little bit here. Not so. Yeah. Did you look up a picture of her? I I didn't, actually. I don't think I have ever seen her. Yeah. She looks like you would think. Yeah. I think I just had such a mental image of her, I, I assumed I knew what she looked like. And she does not look friendly. Let's put it that way. I could see that hair in in a kind of a, a tight bun, maybe, and then with the calico lace um, neck dresses.
0: Yeah. I mean, no one smiled in pictures back then, but she, in the only photo that I found, was especially good at the, the photo scowl.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: So... You know, they moved to Plainfield where she thought things would be better, I guess, and uh, not a sinkhole of filth. Mm -hmm. And it was not any better. There was was no place that Augusta Gein could have gone that would have been suitable for her.
1: I think that's absolutely true.
0: Yeah, because there were other human beings there. And I think she considered just about everyone filth uh, unless they were, you know, maybe the preacher. And who knows? She may have considered her preacher filth.
1: I could see that. And she definitely considered her husband filth.
0: Consider her husband filth, and women, um, you know, in, any woman that had been on a, a date with another man, she uh, had bad things to say about it, seems like.
1: Yeah. So um, that was actually a, not a good move for the family. You know, they've been doing okay from, from what I could tell as, as far as they could do okay with an abusive, alcoholic, shiftless father um, and an angry mom. And Lacrosse, I think they'd been doing better financially. They moved to Plainfield and they started farming. And their dad was fairly useless to begin with. But secondly, the, the soil, the, the land, they were not used to farming this kind of sandy soil or they didn't have any idea what they were doing with farming anyway. So they had a really hard time growing crops. And then apparently the neighbors weren't the friendliest neighbors around, so nobody stepped in to help them and show them what to do. So they endured some real hardship on the farm. That was problem one. Problem two was Ed Gein was not one to leave the house very much. And when he did, he went to school. And it's not like school was a respite for him or a place to escape from. It was just as hellish as it was at home, basically.
0: Yeah, it was. It was pretty bad for Ed. Uh, he had a, a weak eye on one side. He had a growth on his tongue that made him uh, talk different than the rest of the kids. Uh, he had sort of a effeminate appearance, and all of this, you know. And and this is bad at any time in history, probably, mm-hmm. in, in when you're a little kid in school. Sure, but. Back then, it was really bad, and of course, he was bullied and teased, and he would come home crying, and his father would beat him for crying and call him a sissy, mm-hmm. and things are really getting out of hand. Like, his, his mom won't let he or Henry really leave much at all, um, so they're just stuck in isolation where uh, his psychosis, and, you know, later found out to be seriously mentally ill, obviously, but it certainly didn't help to be in this kind of environment.
1: Not at all. But I mean, this is, this was life for him. This is how he lived. He and his his older brother, Henry, who had him by, I think, four years or something like that. um, This was their life. And Henry had like this, he was not as wrapped up in their mother as Ed was, not by a long shot. Henry felt totally comfortable criticizing his mother. He saw her as mentally imbalanced. He was just not under her spell like Ed was. Um, But that's how they they grew up. That's how they lived. And she made them both promise that they would die virgins because sex was just so awful and dirty. Um, And then in 1940, the family um, took a turn for the different when George, their dad, died of a heart attack. And that actually kind of opened up Ed's life a little bit more Number one, he had his mom all to himself, right? But number two, just by virtue of having to go out and make more money, he had to go out of the house and do things like odd jobs and babysit and that kind of stuff. So it changed his life a little bit, but it's not like it had any big lasting effects for the better.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, he didn't quite have her to her, to himself yet because Henry was still around. That's true. But uh, Eddie, you know, like you said, he didn't travel much. I think the furthest he ever traveled away from his house, was one time mm-hmm. um, when he was 36, he went to Milwaukee, 150 miles away, for military inspection uh, where he did not get in uh, to the military because of his lazy eye, which uh, could have changed the course of his history, you know? For sure. Had he gotten accepted into military service and uh, gotten under the out from under the thumb of his mother.
1: Mm-hmm. Could have changed the course of a lot of people's history, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, for sure. So... Uh, Four years later, after dad dies, um, he and his brother, they're working at the house, they're burning Mm -hmm. some brush, the fire gets out of control, and then Henry is found dead, and everyone's like, you know, he died in this fire, he died in this fire. Upon a little bit of investigation, and it seems like that's about all they did, uh, there was bruising on Henry's head and neck, and uh, they listed his cause of death as being asphyxiation anyway, Mm -hmm. and... Like we said earlier, it was never proven, but it seems like since uh, Ed led them to the body, even though he said he couldn't find Henry during the fire, yet here's where he is.
1: <laughs> it's a little fishy.
0: It was all fishy. So, you know, to this day, people say that Ed killed his brother, and that was probably his first murder.
1: Yeah, which is a it's a pretty significant first first murder, murdering your own brother, you know. Yeah. So now Ed uh, really does have his mom to himself. Uh, But apparently, from what I read, she really—her health took a really um, bad turn for the worse after Henry died. Um, She really took it hard. And so, in less than a year, she suffered a stroke and um, was basically uh, housebound, if not um, bedbound. And Ed took care of her, which I get the impression that Ed was more than happy to take care of his mom day and night. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it was a— Just
0: such a twisted manipulation that was going on because, on one hand, she's just screaming at him and calling, uh, putting him down, calling him a failure and a weakling. And then other times he would, she would call him into bed to like sleep with her and hold her. And she would whisper to him and say that he could spend the night in her bed and stuff. So, like, he didn't know which way it was up.
1: It was just standard elderly mom and middle aged son stuff, you know, but. We all go through it. It's true. We've all crawled into our mom's bed and slept the night at age 45. <laughs> but this didn't go very well for Ed. Um, he still was lapping it up, though. Here's the thing. He was the—he um, was so devoted to his mom that any attention from her, negative, positive, whatever, would have been—like, that. That's he needed that. That oh, was yeah. normal to him, however he got it. Um so he, uh, he took care of her, he cared for her one way or another. And she died um, in 1945, which is what? Was that a year after her, his brother died? Uh, yeah. Yeah, so she didn't even last a year after Henry died. She dies of from what I saw was pneumonia and probably another stroke. And now here's the thing. Ed Gein, who was almost never allowed to leave the farm, and when he did, he encountered people who were extraordinarily unfriendly to him. He had turned into um, a bit of a weirdo, you could say, even just from the outside, just from you know what normal people knew about him in town. He was considered an oddball and a weirdo, but generally harmless. But now he was totally and utterly alone on this family farm. And the first thing he did was board up his mom's rooms so that he could establish a shrine to her. The rest of the house, though, kind of fell into what you would call disrepair.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was serious uh, neglect at that point. He didn't seem to care about keeping the house up except for that pristine room where mm-hmm. mommy lived. Mm-hmm. Uh, he started getting into some unusual things like uh, anatomy books and um, pornography and horror novels, pulp horror Um Nazi Nazi books about Nazi atrocities, mm-hmm. and he would, he would start to go out a little bit. He generally still stayed around the farm and, like we said earlier, unbelievably worked as a babysitter <laughs> and as a handyman around town. So he started to kind of appear a little bit in town, and no one thought a lot about the guy um, except, like, the occasional time when he would stop in at this pub, uh, Mary Hogan's in Pine Grove, mm-hmm. and he would say weird things about... Some horror novel or some Nazi book that he was reading to the point where people were like, hmm, that's a very to talk about headhunting and sex change operations, this is what they called it back then. Right. Uh it's an odd thing to talk about in nineteen forty five at a bar.
1: In rural Wisconsin especially. For sure. And he would also—he had a weird habit of, like, laughing suddenly apropos of nothing that anyone else could could put their finger on. So it it seemed a lot like he was laughing at his own jokes, that kind of stuff. He was an odd dude. But again, the town was—they considered him so harmless and so trustworthy that they would let him babysit their children. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He had a a reputation, from um, the way that people put it, of not going— deer hunting with the rest of the guys, which I mean, like, if you don't go deer hunting in Wisconsin in the 40s and 50s, what is wrong with you? You know what I mean? Yeah. But he was known to be too squeamish to, to do something like deer hunting. So he didn't deer hunt. That's how the town viewed him. Um, and if you look back, though, there were a lot of red flags that he was putting up that in retrospect, with all of the information that the townsfolk later had, um, really seemed very fishy, that they were just kind of waving off a lot of stuff. Like, for example, that bar owner, the, the bar he went to, Mary Hogan's Tavern, mm-hmm. she disappeared. And no one knew where she went for three years. She just vanished. There was a little bit of blood left behind at the bar, but one night as she was closing the bar down, she just vanished. And Ed used to joke about how Mary was staying at his house for the night um, and the townspeople thought that was weird, but not necessarily remarkable, maybe a little tasteless. Um, but in reality, he had murdered Mary Hogan, um, back in 1954.
0: Should we take a break right there?
1: Oh, yeah. That was a, an abrupt cliffhanger.
0: <laughs> We're on the wrong side of the cliff. But <laughs> yeah, we are. We'll come back right after this. Okay.
1: 300,000 plus travel experiences to choose from means you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy.
0: That's right. You can also enjoy real traveler reviews to get insider information from people who've already been on the experience that you're considering. Plus, you get free cancellation that helps you plan for the unexpected.
1: Yeah, and Viator offers 24-7 customer service, so you know you'll get support at any hour if things aren't going as planned. So download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find the perfect travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You, you, you know. know. You know. All right, so we're back on the wrong side of a cliffhanger. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. So Mary <laughs> Hogan disappeared. What happened, Chuck? What possibly happened to Mary Hogan? She was murdered. By who?
0: <laughs> By Ed Gein on December 8th, 1954. What? I didn't see that coming. He shot her. Uh, he shot her with a thirty two caliber uh, pistol, put him into his pickup truck, mm-hmm. and took her back to the farm. And this is not something that was known until 1957 yeah. uh, when everything really unraveled. It was a full three years, though, that he was still in town uh, and, I guess, occasionally making a joke about what happened to Mary.
1: Right. So, um... When you say things unraveled for him one night, like, it, they found out everything. They went from thinking he was just an odd little dude who wouldn't even kill a deer to coming across the the most depraved, deranged human being in the history of American crime up to that point. There may have been people to come later on, mm-hmm. but Ed Gein was the first truly depraved killer in America that America had ever known. Prove me wrong, somebody who loves true crime. Prove me wrong.
0: Yeah. And here's the thing. He was, um, he had survived things like the local kids coming by, peeking in his house and saying they saw human, shrunken human heads hanging in the living room. Yeah. And he survived all that and laughed it off and said that, oh, you know, my cousins served in the South Seas in World War II and sent these Little heads back as souvenirs. (laughs) Not
1: not that the kids are, like, wrong or mistaken. It's, no, I've got shrunken heads. They're just souvenirs.
0: Yeah, but as it turns out, they were real
1: human heads. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So they were real human heads. They weren't from the South Seas. And um, Ed had shrunk them himself, actually. He had read some books on that kind of thing and probably talked about it at the bar, which he probably regretted when those teenagers started running their mouths around town. But um, he didn't have to worry about that for very long because in 1957, in November of 1957, he went to the local hardware store, Warden's Hardware Store. And Warden's hardware store was owned and operated by a woman named Bernice Warden. And she was working that day. It was toward the end of the day. And Ed Gein came in. He needed a a jar of antifreeze. And she sold it to him, filled out a receipt, gave him the receipt. Um, And I guess uh, presumed that that was done. Their business was done. But. Ed walked over to the wall and got down a twenty-two caliber rifle, and pulled a twenty-two caliber shell out of his pocket, put it in the rifle, and then shot Bernice Warden in her head. And um, he apparently then, and this is this is where the podcast really starts to get grisly, everybody. So just buckle in, or maybe press stop here. But the the um, amount of blood that they would later find in this hardware store was so much that they presumed that Ed cut Bernice Warden's throat after he shot her in the head and then dragged her to the loading dock where he took her body away.
0: That's right, so uh, he put the rifle back on the rack mm-hmm. um, didn't even bother to take out the shell that he had brought <laughs> took the cash register and um and I don't get the idea that that was to make it appear as if it were a robbery, even I think he just needed the money probably that's
1: possible
0: um although who knows. But uh Bernice Warden had a son uh named Frank and he was a deputy and he came back into town after deer hunting like everyone did in Wisconsin mm-hmm. in the 1940s except Ed Except Ed he stopped by the old hardware store and it was very odd to him cuz she was not there the door was unlocked the back door was open and then he notices a little trail of blood from the front to the back door and very quickly and easily just looked at the little receipt pad, mm-hmm. saw that half gallon of antifreeze was the last receipt made out to Ed Gein, called the sheriff, and they went to Gein's farmhouse to question him. And very quickly found Bernice Warden uh, behind the house hanging in what's called the summer kitchen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I guess it's where you go when it's really hot to cook that's not right. inside the house. Yeah. Uh, and again, this is where it gets super grizzly. You've got one more chance to stop. <laughs> I turn back now. But he basically treated her as if he had been deer hunting. Uh, she was disemboweled and dressed like a deer, uh, hanging uh, naked upside down from a pulley, uh, beheaded and fully, fully dressed and butchered like a deer would be.
1: So I want to I just restate something. One of the two people who found her was her son, Like, he walked into the summer kitchen, and there is his beheaded, disemboweled mother hanging by her ankles in Ed Gein's summer kitchen. Just, like, imagine that. Like, if you read all of the accounts of this stuff, no one ever stops and points out that, like, poor Frank Warden found his mother like this. But he did, and the sheriff was there, too. And very quickly, they uh, called for backup. And back in the day in rural Wisconsin, backup meant like all the neighbor folk, all the men in the, in the surrounding county would, were, were deputies basically. So they all showed up. And pretty soon they launched this investigation of Ed Gein's house. And in very short order, Ed Gein's house would be known as the House of Horrors. And that's a pretty good name for it, actually, considering what they found there. Because they caught um, Ed Gein basically in the act of of field dressing um, Bernice Warden, But this is definitely not his first rodeo as far as that was concerned.
0: No, but it appears as if it was... Uh... Only the second time that he had ever actually killed someone. Right. Uh, What they found was really disturbing. Uh, You know, human body parts used uh, in exactly the ways that they were in Silence of the Lambs, as far as, like, using human skin and human bones and skulls to make into other things. Mm -hmm. Um, Handicrafts. Yeah, I mean, the most horrifying stuff that you could imagine. Uh, and they realized that it was probably about 15 women um, in total, you know, from all the various uh, parts that they were able to get together. And uh, he had only killed two of them. So that presented a bit of a uh, conundrum until Ed Gein said, basically, uh, you know what I do? I, I, I'm digging up people from their graves.
1: Yeah, he said that um, later on, he was caught just so utterly red-handed, it was ridiculous. But they spent hours and hours, like uh, maybe 10, 12 hours during that first, um, that first investigation. And it wasn't a big house, but they were just turning up so much horrible, twisted, bizarre stuff made out of body parts that it just took that long to catalog and, and comb through everything. Um, but he said, no, I've been robbing graves because, I am capable of raising the dead, so I go and and rob graves. And the first grave I ever robbed was my mother's grave, about a year and a half after she died back in 1945. Um, I went to the grave site, dug her up, I opened her casket, and I pulled her head clean off of her body with my bare hands, which is the grisliest thing any human being has ever done in their entire life in the history of the world. Yeah, but it's interesting in that
0: they never went and exhumed the— the grave site right? uh, as part of the investigation, which is really strange. So they're taking Ed Gein's word for it, I guess. Um, This
1: They had had dug up other ones, Chuck, so I don't know if maybe they were just satisfied that like once they found one or two, they're like, fine, we'll believe you on the rest of them.
0: And I guess maybe in the 1940s that was like they got their man. You know, I don't know. Yeah. I'm not sure what that would have done in the case of his mother's grave, you know?
1: Sure. It's like, hey, whatever you do to your mother's 18-month-old corpse is your business, I guess.
0: I don't think that, I don't <laughs> think
1: that was the case. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh,
0: but this is where Errol Morris weirdly comes into the story. Uh, yeah. And I feel like we talked about this on another episode at some point.
1: Oh, really? This was news to me.
0: But Errol Morris, the documentary filmmaker, he was going to do uh, a story about Ed Gein. Spent about a year in Plainfield in the 70s uh, doing his research that he uh, he never made the film. But his pal, Werner Herzog, they had sort of a uh, interesting relationship over the years. But Werner Herzog said, You know what? We are going to go back and, and dig up the grave in the dead of night. Nice. <laughs> Errol. And Errol <laughs> uh, did not show up. No, apparently but they, Herzog did, though.
1: They had, yeah, they had like an appointed night and day and time and everything. And Herzog was there ready, to, probably with a shovel or two and maybe some coffee and donuts.
0: I would imagine. <laughs> Snacks were not in order, but you never know,
1: I think Errol Morris made the right decision in that in that case because, you know, grave robbing, even for verification for a research project or research for a project, that's you don't want to do that kind of thing. So as far as we know, then, no one has ever verified Ed's story about his his him taking his mother's head. but, there's a lot of other good evidence that 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 was the case, that he did do that, because one of the things they found in his house were faces, human faces of women. And this is a really important point here. Women all roughly of the same age, build, um, look, kind of. And all of those women happen to look kind of like his mother. And so over the years, a lot of people have said, like, why did he do this? What was the problem? But one of the first psychiatrists after he was caught, and we'll talk a little more about him being caught, but um, one of the first psychiatrists who examined him said, "Um, I'm pretty sure I have figured out why this guy did this. He was robbing graves and trying to resurrect the dead when really he was trying to resurrect his mother. And he was robbing the graves of women who looked like her. Both of the women, Mary Hogan and Bernice Warden, who he murdered, they bore a rough resemblance to his mom. And so what he was ultimately doing in his head was, was creating a substitute mother or recreating his mom, reanimating his mom so that she could never leave him again because he brought her back from death. In reality, if you were a teenager looking through Ed Gein's window at night, he was dressing up in a suit of skin made from women who he'd murdered or whose graves he'd dug up so that uh, he could pretend more accurately to be his mother. That's right. Uh,
0: he admits, like you said, he was called super red-handed, so he admitted fully to those murders, although uh, Hogan's, uh, the confession about Hogan was ruled inadmissible because they basically, you know, beat him to a pulp while he was in uh, the waiting room.
1: Well, plus also with with Bernice Warden, he he always said that it was an accident, which is BS, but that he never confessed to purposefully murdering her.
0: That's right. Um It was, you know, inappropriately uh, or I guess inaccurately relayed that there was a human heart uh, and a frying pan on the stove. Um, It turns out that was not true, but that was enough to get rumors started that he was a necrophile, that he was a a cannibal and was eating human organs because human organs were found all over the place. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems like that's probably not true. Um, But maybe we should take a break and talk a little bit about uh, the trial of Ed Gein and what happened right after this.
1: Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Before we take a break, Chuck, let's just say he was convicted. We'll be right back right after this. So we're on the other side of a cliffhanger again.
0: That's right. Uh, Ed Gein has a lawyer named William Belter Uh who uh, throws in not guilty by reason of insanity plea. And at the time, he was found unfit to stand trial in 1958 because they diagnosed him as having schizophrenia. And uh, he went to Central State Hospital where he... Stayed for 10 years until they finally did say, you are fit to stand trial 10 years later. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then sort of anticlimactically, he was found guilty of the murder of Bernice Warden, but found insane at the time. So basically, just go back to Central State Hospital.
1: Right, and he petitioned years after that in 1974 to be released. He was like, okay, maybe I was crazy at the time. I'm not anymore. Let me out. And they said no. He said okay, and he never he never tried again. Yeah, I don't um, think he would have had much of a shot. No, apparently the guy, the the doctor, the director of the hospital, the Central State Hospital, used to re- receive pretty frequently death threats if if he ever let Ed Gein out. Yeah, I'm sure that he didn't even need those. No. So um, it, a lot of people, including the judge who presided over Ed Gein's case in 1968, who went on to write a book, strongly suspect Ed Gein was responsible for other disappearances and murders, not just his brother Henry's, but also some local ones. There were two hunters who went missing in 1951. Um, the only thing that was ever found of them was one of their jackets and their dog, one of their dogs. But They and their car just vanished mysteriously. Um, and Ed Gein was later questioned about it. He said, I didn't kill him, but my neighbor did, and I can show you where the bodies are. And I guess the authorities went, no, nah, that's okay. Um, there was an 8-year-old girl who went missing, a 15-year-old girl who went missing. Um, and so some people think that Ed Gein really did kill multiple people. And it's possible because he still never admitted to murdering Bernice warden, right? So maybe he did, and he just would have never fessed up. I don't know. But it does, like you were saying way earlier, it goes against his M.O., murdering kids and then murdering men. What he was after were women that looked like his mother. That's That was my impression.
0: Yeah, and as you would expect, uh, a house like this after something like this goes on becomes it was already sort of the stuff of legends mm-hmm. uh, because of kids poking their face in and seeing you know heads hanging on the wall but after this happened like you you can imagine exactly like what happens people are coming by to see the house driving by the house of horrors uh, vandalizing the house of horrors um, they posted notice eventually that the contents of the house and the farm were going to be auctioned mm-hmm. and you know, understandably, the townspeople went nuts. Uh, They were like, you can't auction this stuff out. We've already got enough problems with the notoriety in our little quiet, small town that we all love. Population 500. And on March 20th, they took matter into their own hands, seemingly, allegedly, uh, because the house burned to the ground one night, and they never never caught who did it, but it's pretty clear that it was uh, an entire town of people with Uh, pitchforks and torches.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're handing out like Kool-Aid and saltines at that thing as refreshments. I think the whole town did it, you know? Yeah, but it did not stop the curiosity of this house, of course. It didn't. I mean, like, people still came and still do go to to see the, the lot where this was. Um, but it did—it it was probably pretty effective to to cut down a lot of looky-loos. There was no real pilgrimage or shrine for people to go to with, with just an empty field. I think maybe, like, the driveway's still there. I don't know. Um, it's not much to look at. So, yeah, there's going to be a lot less people that come to Plainfield. But— a couple of things were auctioned off. One of which was supposedly his cauldron, where he kept um, disembowelled embowels. I guess um, that has not necessarily ever been proven as correct that actually is his cauldron. It's just allegedly his cauldron. But his car was definitely auctioned off, um, and there was a bidding war that 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 started between like 14 bidders, and the winning bid was from Bunny Gibbon. Who is a, um, a carnival sideshow operator who bought the car to promote at sideshows? And Bunny Gibbon started promoting it as Ed Gein's ghoul car, which he used to transport bodies to and from the grave and transported Bernice Warden back to his house. And Bunny Gibbons put a um, a mannequin in the car as Ed Gein as the driver and a mannequin as Bernice Warden's body and charged twenty five cents to come take a peek at it.
0: Yeah, and he sold a lot of those admission tickets. Mm-hmm. Uh, sold like 2,000 of them over a two-day period. That's a
1: lot for a carnival. You it know? is.
0: And, you know, people are attracted to the macabre and kind of always have been. So he made a little money, um, although it was very controversial, and he got some good uh, good, bad publicity because of it, mm-hmm. which was fine with him. Um, but at some point, some of these fairs started to say, no, we're not going to, let you come in here and bring this car in here. We're basically going to shut you down. Uh, The sheriff arrived at one and shut him down. And then he basically said, you know what? I'm uh, I'm taking my car onto greener pastures in Illinois, where hopefully I'll be able to show my car there.
1: Yeah, I I guess Illinois was fine with it or it just petered out or something because after that, the trail kind of goes cold, and no one has any idea what became of Ed Gein's car. So it may be out there somewhere. It may be in parts in different cars. It may just be a, a, a cube. Who knows? It may be part of your refrigerator. Could be. But no one knows what happened to Ed Gein's car.
0: Yeah, we do know what happened to Ed Gein's cauldron. Uh, if that was, in fact, his cauldron, mm-hmm. uh, a woman named Evelyn Mayer bought it in 1958 uh, and planted flowers in it representing the victims. Uh, Fifty years later, her grandson, Dan McIntyre, found it in his parents' garage, had it verified by people uh, from the auction that they were, you know, they at least say that was that was the one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then four years ago, it was auctioned off and now is on display at Basin's Haunted Museum in Las Vegas. Wow.
1: I would go see that, wouldn't you? I don't know. I don't know if I would fly out to Vegas to see it or anything like that, but if I were walking down the street and they're like, come on in, I'd probably go in. I don't think – I'm not interested in that stuff. Um, I want to also – let me give a shout-out because I hadn't heard anything about the cauldron before, but um, I found out about that from the site Cult of Weird. You ever heard of Cult of Weird? Mm, I'm not sure. It's a good little site, and I think they might actually be based in Wisconsin, so – just want to tip my hat to them for teaching me about Ed Ed Gein's cauldron. Interesting. So, Chuck, when um, Ed Gein was still alive, he was very much a a legend. He didn't die until 1984. And long before that, he was basically made into this legendary boogeyman when the first character that was based on him hit the the big screen. It was uh, Norman Bates in Hitchcock's Psycho. And Hitchcock had made this movie based on a book that had come out, I think, the year before by an author named Robert Block, also called Psycho. And Block was from Wisconsin, so he kind of fashioned the, the meat of the story or the bones of the story around the Ed Gein crimes. Was that intentional? <laughs> the, the bones or the meat? Yeah. You know what's really sad is it absolutely wasn't. Oh, Interesting. I was like, "What? why are you making that face? I, I'm, I, I don't understand. Uh,
0: the next movie was a little more on the nose. Uh, in 1974, there was a low-budge movie called uh, Deranged. Mm-hmm. And it was about a killer named Ezra Cobb, but it was very clearly modeled on Ed Gein. Um, and when you look at even the production stills of this thing, he's like eating brains out of a skull and... Uh, making suits of skin—it's—it looks really pretty horrific. It was a Canadian movie, but oh, man. it uh, starred uh, as Ed, Ezra Cobb, aka Ed Gein, one Roberts Blossom, uh, one of my favorite character actors who is no longer with us. What else was he in? He played Old Man Marley in Home Alone. Oh, okay. Wow. That guy. wow! I'll bet he did a good Ed Gein. He did, and when he was younger, he looked—I uh, mean, if you think he was scary and. In home alone you should have seen him when he was in his 20s
1: i can imagine those canadians man they'll they'll make a, a ghastly film have you ever seen um uh um strange brew <laughs> i actually love that movie <laughs> yeah i bet you that i'm not sure if that one ages i'd be curious uh, i was like come on what's a what's a movie associated with canada come <laughs> on josh come on Um, So the next up was actually the same year. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out the same year that Deranged did. And uh, Toby Hooper knew about the Ed Gein story because he had relatives in Wisconsin who were like, listen to this. And they told him, he said, I'm going to grow up to make a crazy movie about this based on this someday. And he did. He made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was one of the all-time great, not just horror movies, but indie movies of all time. For sure. Have Um, you ever read, there's a Texas Monthly, like, long-form article about the making of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Have you ever read it? No, but Texas Monthly is a pretty good rag. It is a good rag. Uh, I think maybe Skip Pollensworth wrote it. They've got a few really great writers there. But um, they they used to, there was another like much, much bigger like studio film shooting in the area at the same time. And the um, crew from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre would go to that set and act like they work there for catering, like during lunch and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. They would go steal catering food and just pose like they were supposed to be there, and then they go back and and film some more. Although they also frequently get kicked off a set and get caught. I went to a catering truck or two in my neighborhood in L.A. when I wasn't working on them. Well, you're letting them, you're not ruining their shots, so they owe you, you know? Yeah, I was just getting a breakfast burrito occasionally. (laughs) Uh, So as
0: far as Gein, well, of course, we mentioned Silence of the Lambs Mm -hmm. in 1991. But as far as Gein goes, he was a model prisoner, um or well, you know, I guess in the uh in the home where he was. It wasn't a prison.
1: Well, he was incarcerated. He wasn't allowed to leave, so Yeah, yeah. I mean do you call him a prisoner though, I guess? Or uh, a patient? Uh, patient inmate maybe? How about inmate? All right. He was a model inmate. Uh there was one
0: quote from a cook that said Eddie was uh normally a very unassuming, quiet, helpful kind of guy. You didn't know who he, what he had done, you would think nothing of him. Uh and like you said, he died there in nineteen eighty four. Um, of cancer and respiratory illness on July 26 and was buried in Plainfield uh, with his family at 3 a.m., obviously, to, in the dead of night, um, ironically, across from a grave that he had robbed. Um, <laughs> but they smartly eventually removed his uh, headstone and put it in storage because it was stolen in 2000. Then mm-hmm. they found it in Seattle a few months later. And mm-hmm. They were like, let's just leave this unmarked between Henry and Augustus Graves.
1: Really, what good is it doing? Like, what are they saving it for, you know?
0: Oh, I mean, there may be laws against destroying a headstone. Who knows?
1: Oh, I'll bet you're right. I'll bet you're right. So, yeah, you can go visit their graves now, and the the gap in between their headstones, is that's where Aguin is buried. And there's one more thing. Like, uh, we a lot of people talk about cannibalism. A lot of people talk about necrophilia, but it's not at all clear that he ever ate any person and that he ever engaged in any actual like sex act with anybody that he murdered or, or dug up. And in fact, remember he promised his mother that he would remain a virgin his whole life. He said that he had never had a sexual encounter with anybody else living or dead, just himself. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was it. So he's probably not a necrophile either. that's it for Ed Gein. Wow, this was a ghastly episode, wasn't it, Chuck? Yeah. Um, If you want to know more about Ed Gein, well, there's a lot that you could go read. Like, we didn't even, we purposefully didn't really go into the stuff that they found at his house. It was really bad. So if this floated your boat and you want to get all sicko, go check it out. In the meantime, it's time for Listener Mail. Uh, This is called Eyewitness Identification.
0: Uh, real-life story here hey guys a few years ago I saw a man crouching by my neighbor's bike she kept locked to a chain fence between our properties Mm -hmm. watch for a few moments to confirm he was working towards stealing the bike when I asked him what he was doing he muttered nothing and I said well it kind of looks like you're trying to steal my neighbor's bike so I'm gonna call the cops now first of all Karen I don't know if that was you shouldn't probably engage that that man
1: that's true but it was pretty hilarious line yes
0: Uh, He ignored me and continued, so I stood there about five feet away, separated by that chain-link fence.
1: He continued?
0: (laughs) And uh, describing his clothing and, and features to the police over the phone, when the dispatcher asked how old he looked, it took everything in me not to pause and ask him his age. So, unfortunately, the man got away with the bike before the cops arrived, so they drove around looking for him, came back a while later with a man on a bike who did bear a very close resemblance to the thief, uh, even the clothes were super similar. The guy matched the description I had given so closely, the cops would not, uh, could not believe it when I repeated, uh, no, he's not the guy. Hmm. Uh, the only reason I was so certain is because it took, I really took the time to look at him for a moment. I'm a terribly unobservant person, and it really made me realize what a poor witness I would make after the fact, how hard it can be to note those necessary details when your brain is on autopilot. Uh, they were never able to catch the petty bike thief, Hmm. But very glad they didn't arrest the innocent man. And how dumb am I for standing next to a criminal while I call the cops on him?
1: <laughs> well, at least she knows now. She's She's got some perspective now.
0: Yeah, she says this is before our camera phones and such, so next time I'll just snap a picture.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, sir,
0: can you look at me? Great. Thank you. And that is from Karen in Memphis. And Karen said, come to a show in Memphis. She said, you guys could sell out the Orpheum, no problem.
1: Oh, Yeah. Oh, I
0: looked it up. The Orpheum seats 2,500, so. Oh, I don't. Know. Karen, we could not <laughs> sell out the Orpheum, no
1: problem. <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. If you have something about half that size. Yeah, we could try that. We might be in business. Maybe, Maybe we could we'll do, go to Memphis. Or a special show at Graceland. That'd be pretty cool. Oh, jeez, that'd be wonderful. We could do it in that uh, the television room.
0: Yeah, or, or in Sun Records, or on the Lisa Marie.
1: Oh yeah, was that the plane?
0: Uh huh. I've there. been
1: on there. It's great. Uh, Okay, well, if you want to get in touch with us like Karen did, Karen, be a little safer next time. It's a bike, okay? Um, You can go on to our website, stuffyoushouldknow.com. Check out our social links there. Or you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals,